I want to welcome you into the Sunday Preaching Podcast of the Point Church, located in beautiful Perdido Key, Florida. I'm Tim Coleman, the senior pastor, and we believe strongly in the expositional preaching of God's Word that builds our faith and grows us up in Christ. I'm glad you're either downloading the sermon or listening live to our service, and I pray that this message is a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join me as we get to the point. Let's get into the Word. Shall we do that? Grab your Bible, tablet, phone, whatever you use, and find 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I told the early service, I don't need your sympathy, I just need you to know I've not felt well the last couple of days, and so uh, not uh, avoiding you, and I hope that I would preach my sermon today and you would never notice that I don't feel well, uh, but uh, just pray for me. Will you do that? Pray for me. God would give me the energy that I need, and uh, hopefully I'll get to feeling better here uh, pretty quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, today uh, we are looking at verses 18 through 31. We've entitled the series, uh, Christianity and Culture, and we're focused here on this first section, the first five or six chapters of the book, uh, with the subtitle of Unity in the church. There's problems in the culture. There's problems in the church. And Paul writes this letter uh, certainly to focus on the unity of the church, to make sure that the body of Christ is together in its doctrine, in its belief, and in its practices. Why? Because the culture is always going to be clashing with Christianity. Has anybody noticed that this week in the world that we live in? As of this week, Arizona Christian University has been targeted by the local school district there in Phoenix, Arizona, particularly the Washington Elementary School District, which has had a partnership with them for over 11 years, and they have come out and said, we will no longer accept your teachers or your educators in our school district. Laurie Roberts, who is a writer for the Arizona Republic and a USA Today writer, wrote this about this situation. She wrote, quote, The Washington Elementary School District School Board has a message for education majors who attend Arizona Christian University. You are not welcome here. The question is, why? Are these students, graduates, educators not welcome in that school district? Have they been poor employees? Uh, have they not been doing a good job? Have they been causing problems in the classroom? What is the issue at hand? Well, Roberts goes on to explain why they are not welcome in those classrooms. She says, quote, it seems the university's budding educators are just simply too Christian to be allowed to teach in the district's 32 schools. Now let that digest for just a minute. The problem, she says, is that these students are just too Christian. What's interesting is that there are no stories of problems in the classroom. There are no stories of conflict that are on record, no issues where these students 
are going into the classroom or these educators are going into the classroom and, uh, you know, teaching the Bible or forcing uh, their beliefs on the students. But the problem is the LGBTQ community has come against them because they want this Christian ideology out of the school district, so they have protested their involvement. One board member said, quote, it makes queer children in our community feel they cannot be saved. Another board person, the actual chairwoman of the board, Nikki Gomez-Whaley, she said, for me, this is not a concern about Christianity. There are plenty of Christian denominations who are LGBTQ friendly. So I want to make it clear that for me, my pause is not that they're Christians. So much as this particular institution's strong LGBTQ stance and their belief that you actually believe this to your core and then you take it out into the world. Now, that's just some interesting things there. I'd like to take an hour and unpack several things that have been said there. So this article kind of says to us that maybe the world is okay if you call yourself a Christian as long as you're not too Christian. Or you're a Christian, but it is a divided subcategory of Christianity to where you actually don't take what you believe. Like you're sitting here in this room today and uh, we're in the Word and we're going to talk about how to live and how to live out our faith in this godless world. And then we would just do what we do. We practice our faith in here, but we never practice our faith out there. Dr. Al Mohler, in his daily briefing this week, the president of Southern Seminary, about this particular situation said, quote, this is a sign of what Christians in virtually any profession, in virtually any community are likely to face and face pretty fast. There is a war going on. And if you don't know that, you've got your head in the sand. There's a war against biblical values. There is a war against Orthodox Christianity. There is a war against our Creator, God Almighty, the Creator of all things. The world seems to be okay if you have a Jesus and a faith that doesn't line up with the system of Scripture. The war today is for the inerrant, inspired, infallible, authoritative Word of God. That's where the battle is. And let me kind of redirect here for just a minute and say, that's why I believe this, this is so important. I'm really thankful that you're here today. I'm thankful that you're making this a priority. Because in this day, Christians need to come together. Christians need to be unified. Christians need to live out their faith in local community. Christians need to be 
with like-minded brothers and sisters who are unified in what we believe. I'm going to guess maybe there might be one or two or three skeptics here or some that are uh, searching out the, uh, the tenets of our faith and Christianity, but I'm also going to guess that by and large I'm speaking to the choir today. I'm speaking to people who believe in the authoritative Word of God. And many are asking the question. It was asked this week to me. The question is, out there in the world, as we're facing hostility and we're facing pushback, what do we do? How do we respond? Well, today, Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, shows us that the world has always had a philosophy, an ideology, and a perspective that is not compatible with Christianity. What concerns me today is not so much what's out there as much as what we are seeing infiltrate the church. Worldly philosophy, worldly ideas that are being brought into the church that are the enemy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you gobble up worldly philosophy and worldly ideas, it will certainly affect the way you view the gospel and the way you practice your faith. So the true church, the body of Jesus Christ, A.W. Tozer said last week, I mentioned to you, that we are not searching out unity. We are not seeking unity. We recognize unity. That unity is already here. That unity has been provided for us by our Creator. That unity centers around Jesus Christ. Remember, the important question today is not what do you think about Christianity. The important question is, what do you think about Christ? What do you think about Jesus? What is your stance on him? Dr. Charles Ryrie said, unity means that there is one God, and our God is indivisible. God cannot be divided into parts. God cannot be divided into different teams. Somebody say amen right there. God can't be divided into different ideologies. You don't have your own God and I have my own God. No, there is one God, Yahweh, Jehovah God, who gave us his word. And so we are united around God Almighty, the creator, and we are united around his word. Now hear me, there are a lot of things that get splattered and bantered around under the banner of of Christianity. But church, I remind you today that we truly have to be united around something. And we have to have guardrails for our faith. What are our guardrails? I'm going to show you in just a minute. It's not your feelings. And it's not what you think. And it's certainly not what is being propagated in the educational institutions of our country. The guardrails are given to us by our Creator, God Almighty. And so Paul continues here in this first section of 1 Corinthians, and he's speaking about what truly unifies us. Now look at me. We can come here and gather in a place like this, and we can can find things that we see differently about the world or about the culture or about so many different things. You and I can look at things 
a little bit differently. But we don't gather here to focus on the things that we disagree about. We gather here to focus on the things that we agree about. What really unifies us. There's enough problems in the world. There's enough problems going on around us that we need to focus on the unity that we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now look at verse number 18. I'm going to move through this as quickly as I can. As Paul continues this theme of unity in the body, he first of all says that as Christians, we embrace the simplicity of the gospel. We embrace the simplicity of the gospel. Look at verse number 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, I'm going to tell you, I could preach, I could just preach a whole sermon on that one verse, all right? Uh, just unpacking this verse really gets me excited. It really does. Paul says there is a word. There is a logos. There is a word. Some of your translations say there is a message from the cross. There's a difference between a word and a message. There's a message that comes from the cross. I remind you that message is scandalous. When someone was crucified, on a cross, it meant that they were cursed. They received a curse. There's this scandalous message of grace to the cross. And there are two different groups of people that have two different perspectives, according to this verse, about the picture of that cross and what was accomplished on the cross. First of all, there is a group that look at the cross and it is folly to them. Now, that word folly, circle that in your Bible, it is the word for which you and I get a word in our English language that hopefully you don't use a whole lot. Hopefully you haven't called someone this lately out of anger. The actual word there is moron. That's the word. So Paul says the preaching of the cross, it is moronic. It is foolish. The word literally is stupid. It is moronic to those who are perishing. Then there's a second group of people. But to those who are being saved, it is the power, the dunamis of God. Now, remember in Corinth at this time, there was certainly, like today, a lot of polarization. I mean, people were put into categories, socioeconomic. I mean, we had a Romans and barbarians. We had uh, Jews and Gentiles. We have slaves and free. We have male and female. We're reminded of that, uh, that picture there in Galatians 3.28 as Paul gives that polarization of the way culture looks at people. But I want you to remind, I want to remind you today that when Jesus died on the cross, all of that became obsolete. They're really today, no matter what sociologists say or come out with, there are really only two groups of people in the world. There are those who are perishing, and there are those who are being saved by the power of the gospel. Now, don't get hung up or nervous about Paul's usage here of being saved. 
Because there is a sense in which the cross, for us as Christians, that he has saved us. How many of you remember have, uh, you remember and you have a clear picture for you of where you were, what was going on when you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior? Wave at me today with joy in your heart to remember that. Because there is a moment, there is a time when your heart is turned. You're a dead man brought to life and you are saved. You're delivered from your sin. For me, it was when I was 13 years old. So there's a sense in which on the cross, or for me, Jesus has saved me. There is also a sense today in which he is saving me. Not that I need to be saved again or born again, but rather he is still delivering me from my sin. He's still delivering me from myself. And then there is a futuristic moment when he will once and for all save us when he will deliver us from this sin-cursed world. Anybody ready for that? Boy, y'all sound real excited. Calm down. Jesus is coming again, and he's coming soon. And you know what? He's going to save us. He's going to deliver us. So when we think about the simplicity of the gospel, it really is this. Jesus saved me when I was 13. He's saving me now for myself. And one day he's going to save me from this place. And, and, and Paul says here that when you say that, when you preach that, when you declare that to your friends, when it's declared in a public setting like this, that someone who is perishing thinks that's the silliest, most moronic thing they've ever heard in their life. But we always need to remember there is something about them that should break our hearts. There's something about them that should touch us. That's why... We have to think through our responses and how we speak to lost people because they are perishing. They are heading for eternal destruction separated from God. I never hear that word perish when I don't think of John 3.16 that I learned as a kid. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not would not what? Would not perish, but have everlasting life. That's why he said Romans 8.1, there is no perishing, there is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. I'm thankful today as a Christian that when I look at the gospel and I look at the cross, I don't think of it as a silly, legendary story, but I think of it as a story that has changed my life. It is the power of God unto salvation. It really is as simple. You hear me say this almost every week from this pulpit. It really is as simple as every person needs a moment when they acknowledge that they're a sinner. They believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They confess their sin and confess Him as Lord. I often do not say this, but that's the ABCs. Acknowledge, believe, and confess. How many of you know sometimes we can make things too complicated? I mean, need to raise both hands on that. We've been having some conversations lately as a staff about simplification and, and about the mission and what God has called us to. Sometimes simple is better. Years ago, there was a book written called Simple Church that was just challenging churches to simplify things. I was reading 
about Karl Barth the other day, a great theologian. He was asked, what is the greatest theological thought you've ever had? And his response was, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. How many of you know that's a great theological thought? There's power and simplicity. I would say, oh yes, let's be accurate, but let's not get over the simplicity of the gospel. Now we need to remind ourselves that there are some people, the scripture says, who are ever learning. They're becoming more knowledgeable about a lot of things, even sometimes under the banner of religion. But yet they are never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul goes on to say in verse number 19, for it is written, a quote from Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 14, God said, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now, you've got to remember Corinth is a place of oration. Uh, It's a place where smart people hung out. It was a place where the Corinthians looked at people, oh, they're powerful, oh, they're, they're smart, oh, they have a lot of knowledge, oh, they're a great public speaker. And Paul just simply reminds them of what was written in Isaiah 29. God says, I'm going to destroy the wisdom of this world. I'm going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. Verse number 20, he asks some rhetorical questions. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Listen to me, you can have more degrees from institutions than a thermometer and be a fool. Book learning doesn't make you wise. Paul is saying, hold on just a minute. The greatest wisdom is not man's wisdom. It's The tone of his writing here is this. Christians, remember this. I don't care who it is or where they're from or what their pedigree is, or how well they speak, no one is smart enough to match wits with God. The wisdom of God is greater than the wisdom of man. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. You're not going to find God in the sophists, in the educators, in the smart people of this world. That's not where you find God. How do you find God? Look at this. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Man, that's so good right there. How many of you today, you, you just, um, I know we're in church, so I know what you're going to say. But you want to please God. You want to please God in your life? Do you want to do the things that pleases God? Paul says it pleases, it delights, 
it brings God joy. It brings a smile on his face when we choose the moronic process of preaching the gospel. That when we choose to be obedient to him to declare what the world says is silly. How many of you have a family member or a friend or a co-worker or somebody in your neighborhood? They wouldn't actually just come right out and say this to you, but you can just tell by their attitude. They think you're off your rocker because of your faith. Raise your hand up. Come on. Yeah, they think, they think you're goofy. You believe what? The eastern sky is going to split and a trumpet's going to sound? Yeah, do they make medicine for that? The world thinks we're so simple-minded that, we're, that, that it's silly and it's foolish. And when you think about having great debates between uh, people who are smart by the world's standard, and then you think about the simplicity of what Paul is saying here, I think of some great brainiac at Harvard with just a simple country preacher that never finished the fifth grade in Alabama or Tennessee who has the Spirit of God upon him, and he just declares the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says that's what pleases God, preaching the gospel. Why? Because it is through the gospel that people are saved. But yeah, pastor, the world rejects us, and, and, and the, world, the world, they just hurt my feelings. Can I just help you today? Get used to it. Because it's not going to get better, it's going to get worse. And then we have some people today that want to sit around and psychoanalyze into the ground why the world is turned off by Christianity as if that's a surprise to us. I'm around some people today that think the reason why the world hates the gospel and the church, it's all our fault. Like if we would just be nicer, they would like us and like our message. Don't be so foolish. Don't be so foolish. If you spend all your time just all consternated and and critical of your brothers and sisters in Christ, you are a miserable human being because none of us are perfect, and we all have our faults, and we all have things that we certainly can improve on, but maybe the world hates you and your message not because of your disposition. Maybe they hate you because Jesus said they would. He told his disciples, when you get out there and you're doing the work of the kingdom and the world's hating on you, Jesus said, remember, they don't hate you, they hate me. They hate the message of the gospel. I want to just add, I just feel like I need to put this in here today. I'm 50 years old, almost 51, the sweetest, kindest most gracious people I've ever known in my life are Christian. Christian people who love helping people and serving people and ministering to people. But watch, if we're not careful, we can just develop a social gospel of just doing stuff when we really need to bring people to a head-on collision with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the message that the world says is silly and foolish that creates 
conflict. The world today, the ideology of the world is in conflict with the gospel because the gospel doesn't line up with secular views. On Wednesday night, we were here in this room, and in the pipeline, uh, Mitch had given out a book, and I actually read the book myself by Carl Truman entitled A Strange New World. It's about 157 pages, I guess it is. A very interesting read, and Tom Moore, one of our deacons, had uh, put some work together, and he made a presentation in here, and and man, I was just uh, just thoroughly fascinated with the work that he had done, how he went back historically and laid out certain markers and certain philosophers and, and people that to now, uh, now we're seeing their ideology and their philosophy kind of come to life. You know, people like William Reich and Nietzsche and Karl Marx and other things. Uh, some of the things that they wrote 100 years ago was silly and foolish. Uh, they, they died in obscurity and in poverty, but now... Uh, because of a lot of reasons, people are reading their things, and those things have made their way into the culture, and those ideologies uh, are, are fleshing themselves out right in front of us. And there are many people today that feel like, what in the world happened? It's like overnight, the world's crashed. Is there anybody tracking with me here? It's like, how many of you kind of feel like it, overnight we lost our mind? But it didn't really happen that way. It's been happening as a as a gradual process. The old analogy of the frog in the boiling water. You know, you put the frog in the water, you gradually turn the heat up, the frog will just sit there. But if you throw a frog, don't go home and try this, all right? But you throw the frog in the boiling water, the frog jumps out. Well, what we've been doing as a society, a culture, and a world, we've been the frog sitting in the water and the heat's been getting turned up. And now we're throwing our hands up going, what in the world? There are a lot of things that have contributed to that. But one of the ideologies I mentioned a few minutes ago that has its, has its tendency to creep into the church, into Christian people, is this matter of expressive individualism. And, and Carl Truman talks about that, and he notes that American scholar Robert Bella is the one that actually coined this phrase, a Canadian, Charles Taylor, calls it the culture of authenticity. Just You just be you. You be the real you, and you express yourself. Expressive individualism holds that each person has a unique core of feeling and intuition that should unfold or be expressed if individuality is to be realized. In other words, your life is all about what you think, about how you feel, and how you express yourself. And you're foolish if you think that ideology doesn't creep into the church. A.W. Tozer said the cross of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is not that Jesus came to help you along the way. Jesus did not come to help you express yourself. Jesus came so that we would die to ourselves, that we would die. And so we're preaching the gospel. Stay with me for just a minute. We're preaching a gospel to a culture today, and we're saying, die to self. Place yourself under the authority of the Word of God, and the world is laughing at us. 
not only are they laughing at us, but they're saying, get out of our schools. Get out of our workplace. If you believe the archaic values and orthodoxy of Christianity, it doesn't fit in this world. Child of God, I need to remind you today, nowhere in the Scripture does it say that you and I are supposed to feel at home in this world. Because this world is not our home, we're just passing through. In the time that we have left, what do we do? Well, some people, unfortunately, and I'm all about being nice. Most of the time, I think I'm a nice guy. I'm all about being nice. But there are people today that just have this mentality of, man, we just got to be nicer. And I'm going to tell you, you might as well stand out in the middle of the road and just let them run right over you. Because you got you to you meet falsehood with truth. And you've got to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've got to declare it. I was reading after uh, English crime writer and poet Dorothy Sayers. She wrote a book, Letters to a Diminished Church, subtitled Passionate Arguments for the Relevance of Christian Doctrine. And she, in the book, responds to this idea that the problem we have today, there's so many people that are not here at church today because we've got so many pastors who are dogmatic and they're so authoritarian with the Scriptures. How many of you have heard that really lame statement? She said, we get it backwards. It's the neglect of dogma that makes for dullness. And I love this statement. She said, it's boring to adapt the Christian faith to better fit people. What's exciting is adapting people to better fit the Christian faith. The Christian faith is the most exciting drama that ever staggered the imagination of man, and the dogma is the drama of the church. So what are we going to do in these last days? I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago the book I'm reading, The Thrill of Orthodoxy, Trevin Wax. We've got to get back to the thrill of orthodoxy. We've got to get back to orthodox Christianity and quit letting the wisdom and the ideology of the world affect us in what we believe. Because, keep reading, let me finish up this section. Even for the Jews, the Jews wanted signs, right? They were used to miracles and wonders. Jesus, you got to do something to prove yourself. The Greeks want wisdom. They want the sophists. They want lectures. They want oration. But what do we declare? We preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jew because a Jew would never accept that their Messiah was hung as a curse on an old rugged cross. But you and I know that Jesus hung on a cross and he was cursed not because of his own sin, but because of our sin. It's a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God, look at this, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now we read that verse, yeah, 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 but I want you to hold on just a minute. There are a lot of people that gobble up 
soci, uh, sociology books, sociology ideas. I would even add, I'll just go ahead and throw this out there, even in the counseling world and the therapeutic world and the DSM and some of the things that are written by secular godless people, Christian people just gobble it up. And we need to be careful as we compare our life, our actions, and our behavior with the Word of God. Because man is not smarter than God. Y'all getting real quiet on me. Man is not wiser than God. I'll give you an example. I mentioned the LBGTQ a minute ago. I'll give you an example. The DSM-5 said that gender dysphoria was a mental health issue. Guess what? It's not in the latest one. You know why? Because men think they're smarter than God. There are two genders, male and female. How do I know that? Science proves it, and God said it, so I'm going to stick with him. Let me keep moving before I get myself in trouble. Let's embrace the simplicity of the gospel. Number two, embrace who you are in Christ. Embrace who you are in Christ. Look at verse 26. Consider your calling. Consider means, of course, to look at it, think about it, ponder it. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Now, I want to note here that Paul is speaking to this congregation. He's saying, hey, look around. We don't have a lot of powerful people here. It's interesting that he did not say we have no powerful people here or no one of noble birth. I think that's important because God saves everybody everywhere, right? Smart people, rich people, poor people, people like me that barely made it out of school, right? He saves everyone. But Paul is focusing in. He's saying, hey, you know what? You look around Corinth today, they're powerful names. I mean, they would no doubt throw names out and people would go, oh, wow, that person is really smart or that person is really awesome. Paul says, as you look around, you realize that according to worldly standards and according to those who are influential and those who are noble in birth, there are not many of those called into the body of Christ. How many of you are glad today to know that you don't have to be the brightest bulb to get into the family of God. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you don't have to be smart. You don't have to be educated. It says in verse number 27 that God chose. This is his doing. He chose what is, there's that word again, moronic. He chose what's silly and stupid and foolish in the world to humiliate the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to humiliate the strong. God chose what is low, that word there, insignificant. He chooses insignificant people. I think of Elijah who came from Tishba, a place you can't even find on the map. 
God calls people who seem to be insignificant in the world's eyes, in the world's standard. He calls those who are despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. I love that word nothing there. You know what it means? It means to wipe it out. To bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I love verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Paul reminds us here of of who we are in Christ, that, that we may not be the most popular, we may not be the most powerful, we may not be the wealthiest, we may not in the world's standards be viewed as significant in this world. We are exactly the ones whom God has chosen in His sovereign plan to preach, to propagate, and to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. The wisdom of the world The wisdom of the world will not lead you to God. It is not through the wisdom of the world that you will find God, but it is through the wisdom of the gospel. And it's through Jesus Christ, he says in verse number 30, that we can know, we can have the knowledge of what righteousness and sanctification and redemption is all about. You see, friends, you can have degrees upon degrees, upon degrees, and not know what the righteousness of Christ is all about. You can be book smart and never be sanctified, made holy through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. You can be smart by the world's standards and never be redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Redeemed means to be bought back. Jesus purchased me with his blood. Who am I today? I have been declared righteous through the righteousness of Christ. I have been sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ. I have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. What more in life do I need to know? Embrace it. Embrace the simplicity of the gospel. Embrace who you are in Jesus. Pastor Tim, I'm just not very smart. I'm just, I'm just not very bright or I'm not very learned. No, but you're loved by your Father. You're loved by the King. So celebrate. Embrace who you are in Jesus. And then let me finish. Last thing and I'm done. Verse 31. Why is it that way? Why is it that way? How many of you have been around powerful influential people. Some of them are humble servants, and others just kind of strut everywhere they go. You've been around somebody lately who loves to tell you about what all they've accomplished and what all they've done? Maybe God, in his foreknowledge, and his sovereignty, he, he knew that if we could help ourselves or we'd save ourselves, that we'd go around bragging about it. We talk about what we have done and what we have accomplished. 
And so Paul finishes up this section in verse 31 by simply saying, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in who? Boast in who? Boast in the Lord. Pride yourself. Rejoice. Brag about the Lord. So let me finish. Last thing here. Boast in what you embrace. Let me simplify the three statements. Embrace the simplicity of the gospel. Embrace who you are in Christ. And then boast in what you have embraced. In other words, go around bragging about Jesus. Bragging about the Lord. Talking about what great things he has done. You know, pride doesn't have a place in the life of the Christian. Anybody want to admit with me today it's a battle in your life every day, every week? That pride, that monster rears itself up. Pride and smugness doesn't have a place in the life of a believer. It doesn't matter who you're dealing with, whether it's a lost person or whether you're dealing with another Christian. You know, boasting doesn't necessarily mean that you go around bragging with your tongue all the time, but sometimes it can manifest itself in just being smug or you know, I've probably acted that way in my own life and seen Christians act that way, that we take someone that's a sinner or they're lost or they, they don't know about Christ or the gospel and we just get smug, you know, like, oh, you're, you're, you're just silly, you're foolish. May we always keep the spirit of humility and remind ourselves that if it were not for the grace of God, we would be where somebody else is. And may we always share His love and His grace and point everyone to the Lord, to brag on the Lord, and to point everyone to the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, what we just looked at in this passage is what unifies us as a church. It's what unifies us. So may we stay focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said,